All right, we're going to cover the whole book of 1 Corinthians this morning, and I don't like to cover whole books of the Bible at once, um, not because it isn't fun, but because you can only touch very broadly on some of these things that need more detail-oriented treatment. And so if you are left this morning with any questions, if you're like, what on earth was he talking about? Just go back and, and review whichever portion of Corinthians it is. The self-glad there. Um, if that doesn't sate your curiosity, then, um, well, you're out of luck. I can't help you. Uh, no, we can talk more. You can, you can find me and we can talk more. Um, another reason I don't like doing it is it's a little, it's like, it's like fitting the ocean in your backyard pool. It's just there's so much here. And so we're kind of going to take a rock and uh, skip it across the top of the water this morning. Uh, you can think of it like a little helicopter ride over 1 Corinthians. We're going to move very quickly, and um, hopefully there's some structure to it. I don't, uh, because of we've preached through the book over the last eight or nine months, there's great potential uh, for me to go off the rails, and you'll be like, what on earth is he talking about? Just eventually we'll get back to the text, and it'll be... It'll be good. So this should be fun this morning. Um, bear with me, and we're going to work through the book together. Here is one of my contentions, though, as I consider the, the book as a whole. I think all of the Corinthians' problems, all of the issues that they were experienced, could maybe have been solved if they would have just bragged a little bit more. They would have boasted or bragged about the right thing. So I'm going to try to show you that a little bit as we uh, look at the book together this morning. Let's pray first, and then we'll get into the text. Father, animate us with your word. Fill us with your spirit. Govern us with your love. Speak to us now. And your people listen. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at how Paul opens the book in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he goes on to give thanks for the Corinthians there. But what I want to point out to you here is that Paul is addressing this sin-filled church, this messy group of people as saints. The church at Corinth is perhaps the worst church in the entire New Testament, and Paul calls them saints, calls them the, the holy ones of God. He includes them in God's church. And what I want you to grasp a hold of before we progress through the rest of the letter is this. Christians are sinners. We are sinners. If you came here this morning because you're a really good person and God needs you, you've come to the wrong place. If you came because you are a weak and weary sinner and you want to drink from the fountain of life once more again, and you want to worship the God who has saved you because he is good, well, then you are in the right place. Paul is telling the Corinthians right from the get-go, I'm, I'm about to rebuke y'all. I'm, I'm, it's going to get... Get that you are in Christ. Positionally, you are perfect before God. You are Jesus' bride. But you're also not yet perfect, practically. Positionally in Christ, you're already perfect, but practically you're not there yet. You're becoming in practice what God has declared you in Christ, which is holy. You are in the process of living this Christian life, and there are some areas of sin that need to be addressed. 
We learn early on in chapter 1 that Paul has had reports from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe is, but apparently she has people. And they got a hold of Paul, and they've told Paul what's going on in the church at Corinth. And so he's opening this letter by addressing that in the first four chapters. Once we get to chapter 5 on down through the rest, Paul is responding to a Corinthian letter that was sent to him and was filled with questions. But at this point, he says, let me address some of these other matters first before I get to your letter. And the first piece of the Corinthian mess that Paul starts to clean up has to do with divisions. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, note again he's calling them brothers and sisters in Christ, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or even I belong to Christ. Divided? No, is the answer. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized into Paul's name? No. He's making the point to divide yourself by associating with this or that particular teacher is foolishness. You were all baptized into Christ. You all decided to follow Jesus. There's no room for division within the church of God. Stop dividing yourselves in these ridiculous ways. It's a little bit, we, we have a tendency to do the same thing. We like to associate ourselves with particular brands, right? You don't just eat donuts, you eat Krispy Kreme donuts. Maybe Dunkin', I don't know what your flavor is. You don't just drink coffee, you, you drink Starbucks coffee. Don't just drive a truck, you drive a Ford truck. Right? These, these Corinthians are trying to, they, they've turned Christianity into a competition. They're trying to make themselves feel superior to others because, you know, I follow Apollos. You just follow Cephas. Cephas is Peter's name. Same, we do the same thing with brands in our culture. Within the church, sometimes I think we do it based on I, I am so spiritual that I will study on Thursday night. Better. Better. I'm more spiritual than you. Or on the, on the flip side, there's the person, you know, I'm so spiritual, I, I only come to church on Christmas and Easter. You know, I don't need that crutch of every week fellowship. We divide ourselves by our pride, and that's what's happening with the Corinthians here. They've found foolish ways to divide themselves, and we still, we still do today, not just on spiritual criteria, but on worldly criteria. We divide ourselves based on our politics, or our race, or socioeconomic status. We find all kinds of ways to pit ourselves against one another to prove that, well, I'm better because I'm a Democrat, or I'm better because I am an Asian American Christian. I'm more spiritual, and so, you know, I drink Starbucks coffee. But whatever it is, we find ways to try to one-up one another. It's so easy to lose sight of the gospel and to turn Christianity into some kind of spiritual competition. But it is not that. In Galatians 3, Paul reminds us in, chat, in verses 27 and 28, says, As many of you has been, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there that when you become a Christian, those things that make you unique or that are distinct about you just disappear. No, no. Men are still men. Women are still women. 
black people are still black people, white people are still white people. But what he's saying is all of those things become subordinate to your being in Christ. The thing that primarily identifies you now is your adoption into the family of God. The thing that should most define you is your union with Jesus. And that union with Jesus so joins you with people that are different than you that those things that used to threaten to divide you, maybe politics or coffee, whatever, no longer can. Because your love for Jesus exceeds those things that would threaten to divide you from someone else. Because you understand that apart from Christ, you have nothing to take pride in. Paul makes this clear in verses 29 to 31 in chapter 1. He tells them that they're weak and foolish, that God has chosen what's weak in the world to shame the wise, what's insignificant and despised, what's viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. And then in verse 29 he says, so that no one may boast God's presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. If you want to be prideful about something, if you want to praise something, if you want to brag about something, brag about Jesus. Boast in what God has done. Not your brand of coffee, or the color of your skin, or your political affiliation. Boast in Christ. Continues this sentiment in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. In verse 7, for who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When I was in elementary school, we had that famous project where you make a volcano out of like paper mache. Really artsy or craftsy or good at such things, but I poured my heart and soul into that little chocolate cake looking volcano. And I went in that day ready to erupt that bad boy with baking soda and vinegar. Really exciting stuff. And I remember going into my classroom and all of a sudden having the kind of pride in my chocolate cake volcano just vanish. Because what I discovered was the other kids' volcanoes were like exact replicas. They had full civilizations erected at their base, right? The little houses there had electricity and indoor plumbing. Like crazy stuff. And it was... It was really apparent that, that, you know, my fellow fourth graders, (laughs) that they had not done their own volcanoes. That this was the work of their parents. And then I remember thinking, as they sat back and bragged about how great their volcano was, what on earth are you talking about? Like, you had nothing to do with that. Like, maybe you were in the room while it was happening, but your mom and your dad did that. Otherwise, it would look as junky as mine, right? the point of chapter 4 verse 7 what do you have that you did not receive why do you boast as if you didn't receive it we have nothing to do with our experience of grace you have nothing to do with God does all the saving It's as if you woke up in the back of an ambulance, tubes coming out of your nose, and someone says, the the paramedic says to you, I saved you. You were in a terrible accident. Uh, You were out. You were flatlining. I did my thing, and now you're back. I saved you. And you went, well, you might have saved me, but 
really like, you know, I positioned myself just perfectly after this accident. I had plan- I'd taken necessary precautions to ensure that you would be here to rescue me. So really, if we're going to give credit, I deserve some of the credit. Like it's not, your salvation is not something you can boast about. You didn't do it. God's word was applied to your heart by the Spirit of God and made you come alive so that you might believe. You experienced the grace of God and you put your faith in the work of God. But it's all His work from beginning to end so that no man may boast before God Back at verse 129, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. So if you want to boast about something, boast about what God has done. Because you have done nothing. You didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose where you would be born. You didn't choose which talents you would have. These are all received. And salvation is received as a gift from God. And so we want to pursue unity. And I think Paul's prescription for the pursuit of unity here is to lay aside all those silly things we take pride in and to take pride in the thing that unites us. To boast, not in our political party or our you know, Ford truck, but to boast in Christ Jesus who has given us all things. Right, Paul actually tells them at the end of chapter 3, that they haven't gone far enough in their boasting. In verse 21, let no one boast in human leaders. Why? Because everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. At this point, everything you have has been received from God. And by faith in Christ, not only are you associated with these teachers, but all things are yours. You don't even have to worry about about death because in Christ you have been made alive. Boast in Him. Build unity by bragging on Jesus rather than things that you think you've done. You don't have anything that you didn't receive. The church is to pursue Unity. Next, we see that the church is to pursue holiness. Paul is going to rebuke the Corinthians in chapters 5 through 7 for boast. A guy is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know if it's his mom or his stepmom. Either way, it's gross and it's immoral. We also see that the Corinthians are sleeping with prostitutes and they've tried to justify this by saying that the body doesn't matter. And Paul says uh, under the umbrella, he says, your body matters to God. Your sexuality matters to God. Look at, the, look at verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Note this. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You are not your own. The entire Christian life is a derivative of that verse. God is the one who has the right to establish what sex is, and what it is for in its proper context. He created us. He owns us as the creator. And if you're a Christian, you are doubly owned because he owns you as your redeemer. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. And so God gets to make the rules as the creator. 
And he says the only proper context for sexual activity, any sexual activity, is in the context of heterosexual marriage. If you've got sex outside of that, you've got sin. You've got something that God does not approve of. And so those of you Corinthians that are pursuing problems, This causes God to grieve. This is sin. This is not the behavior of Christians. You have no right to customize your sexuality based on your own preference. God tells you the proper use of it. And the proper use of of sex in marriage, it's meant to show us God's faithfulness to us. It's meant to demonstrate to us the eternal pleasures that exist when we are in relationship with God. Marriage is supposed to show us how two things that are not alike can be brought together as one. It pictures how we who are not like God have been united to Him through Jesus Christ. Marriage and sex, they're all about God and His glory. And when we take, we take sex outside of the context of marriage, We make it about our glory. We ignore the word of God, and this this is sin. It's sin that must be repented of. And if it is not repented of, Paul says that the action the church should take is to remove the person who refuses to repent of sin from the congregation. Look in uh, in chapter 5 and speaking to this man that's sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says... When you are assembled, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one, referring to the sinner, over to It's talking about we don't judge outsiders, we judge those insiders, those we've affirmed as Christians in the church. He says, God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. The goal of church discipline is to protect the name of Jesus and to pursue the person who is caught in sin. That's the goal here, is spiritual restoration. It's a, a huge warning to the person that's in unrepentant habitual sin. Look, you are behaving in a way that is not Christ like. The fruit of your life denies that Jesus is Lord of your life. And unless you start repenting, we're going to proclaim with the voice of Christ as the people of Christ that you are not one of us. And in that proclamation, we are going to hope that as you are removed from our midst, that you return to God. And that's the goal of church discipline, spiritual restoration. And to protect the reputation of Jesus and his people. The church is to be a display of God's glory. We are to show the world just how beautiful Jesus is. And when we conduct ourselves in such a way as to sully the name of Christ, well, that's disobedience. That's obscuring the gospel. It's obscuring who God is. For us to affirm people in their sin, to even boast in it like the Corinthians do, is not only to soil the reputation of God, but it's also to endanger ourselves. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may batch as indeed you are. Reminding them you're already in Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Be what you are. Clean out the old leaven. Your boasting in sin is not good. Have you ever heard of kudzu? It's this terrible plant that climbs and coils and curls around other life until it chokes the life out of that. 
If you get it in your garden, it's bad news because you have to uproot it right away or eventually you're not going to have a garden, you just have a giant heap of kudzu. Paul is saying that that sin is like kudzu in the church. It will spread throughout if it's not dealt with. And it will choke the life of God out of the soul of the church. Slowly and surely. Sin is dangerous. Just like leaven spreads throughout the whole batch of dough, unrepentant habitual sin that is allowed to persist in the church will spread throughout the entire church. Don't boast in your sins. Think boast in Christ and pursue holiness. And we pursue holiness in all areas, but specifically in the area of sexual immorality. Back in 6.18 again, we read to flee sexual immorality. So what are some ways that we can do that? And I think this is relevant, by the way. I, maybe, maybe not all of you are sleeping with prostitutes. I don't think anybody is with their father's wife at this point. Um, but statistics bear out that many of you, many of us, struggle with pornography, literary or visual. ourselves against it. So, so how, how do we flee sexual immorality? Now, for the single person, it's really, really simple. No sex. That's it. For the married person, it's, it's pretty simple too. Chapter 7, verse 2. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So married couples, the counsel of Scripture to you, the way you flee sexual immorality, is to have sex with each other and no one else, and to do so regularly, unless you are praying and fasting. And even then, don't pray and fast too long without having sex with one another, because Satan might tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Come together again. So to recap, to flee sexual immorality, single people, no sex. If you are a married person, have sex regularly. Jesus said so. All of us, all of you, need to be on guard against this. type of immorality. None of us are above it. Remember, we need to take heed unless we fall. Is it, we just, just don't go there. right? Run away from it. If you find yourself being tempted by something, don't sit there and entertain it. Find a way to distract yourselves. It's like if you're on a diet and your favorite food is ice cream, what you don't do is you don't roll up to like the Dairy Queen or some Froyo joint, and just sit there inside the place going, love ice cream, but uh, I'm not going to eat it on a diet. You don't, you don't just do that because eventually you're going to have some ice cream. I don't know if Froyo counts as ice cream, but we're, we're categorizing it as such right now. Like if you're in one of those places, you're eventually going to get the little gummy bears and the little cookie pieces and you're, you're going to go to town. You're going to break your diet. Flee sexual immorality. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to fail. Flee. Pursue holiness. Remember that you are not holy or sexually pure because of anything you've done, but because of God's kindness to you and His grace at work in you. Rely on what Christ has done in your life to help you pursue holiness in all areas and specifically in the area of sexual immorality.
Which brings us to chapters 8 through 11. Um, eight one. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's going on in Corinth is uh, you have all these pagan temples, and what they would do is you would take your meat, because people believe there was like demons in and around the meat, and you had to purify the meat. You would go to your temple of your favorite deity, um, and so uh, you know you would go to you know uh, somebody you know a Greek goddess, or Greek mythology, Aphrodite or Zeus. I was thinking more contemporary. I was thinking myself. I was like, I would go to the temple of WVU. And, Anyhow, you go to Aphrodite or Zeus and you sacrifice your meat and Aphrodite uh, chases these demons that are in the meat away and then her presence inhibits the meat and you can eat it. And uh, the temple would divide it into three parts. There would be a part that would go to uh, the person that's performing the sacrifice. The other part would go to the person that offered the sacrifice. And then the third part would go into the marketplace to be sold so that the temples would double as butcher shops, right? And so the question here is, can we eat this meat? And most of the people had grown up in a pagan background, and they are used to eating this meat as an act of worship to Aphrodite or whichever god they chose. And so the question is, wait a minute, am I sinning if I eat this meat? And the Corinthians, they've done their research. They wrote to Paul, and you can see it in chapter 8. I'm just going to tell you. He says, they're like, look, these idols aren't real, they don't really exist, so they're nothing, and it doesn't matter if we eat the meat because nothing's really happening to it there. It's okay if we eat it. And Paul says, you're right in your theological assessment, that's true. You have the right to eat this meat, it's not sin. But knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that's really kind of the, the preface to not only chapters 8 through 11, but chapters 8 through 16 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And what, what Paul is going to tell them here is you might be allowed to eat the meat, but if you're eating of this meat, if this right of yours causes your brother or sister to sin, you should give it up. So you can, you can be right theologically, but wrong in your application of that theology. You can be right in the wrong way. If your right causes someone to sin, and it says down in um, verse 11, so the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, he's talking about if they eat meat and they're caught, they, this person who doesn't think it's okay sees them, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. He's saying it's not sin, but if you do it in such a way, you use this right in such a way that causes someone who thinks it is sin into sin to violate their conscience, well then, you are in sin. Not just sin, but you have sinned against Christ. And so here, here's the point he's going to say, give up your rights to serve others. And look at my example, he says, in chapter 9. He tells them that, look, I have every right to be compensated by you all for my work in the gospel, but I haven't taken advantage of that right because I think that it would have led you into sin. You would have associated me with other teachers in Corinth that speak in order to make money, and I wanted to offer you the gospel free of charge so that you know it's genuine. I didn't want to give you the opportunity to stumble. Hits him with, just a bunch of rhetorical questions, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8. It says, Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake. Because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? It's Paul and the apostles. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything. 
so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul's saying, I have the right to be compensated by you all for what I do, but you know what? I don't take advantage of that right. I've laid down that right for your good. And you see how he's applying that to their situation with eating meat. So you're allowed to eat this meat offered to idols, but maybe you should lay it down for the good of your brother or sister. He continues in verse 10, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. This is verse 23 of chapter 10. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. And look at verse 24. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. And then drop down to verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Verse 24, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. This comes out in a myriad of ways. Uh, one of the ways I've seen it come out in, in my life isn't, isn't really by my own choice, but um, through my wife. Uh, when we have friends that have allergies to things like bread that are delicious, uh, what she does is she tries to make sure that we only eat what they can eat when we're around them. And it's not because we don't have the right to eat bread, but because we want to serve them in love. And so what I've done is I've just figured out who has allergies and said we're not going to be friends with them anymore. Uh, <laughs> love bread. No, but, but even with, um, with Caden in our home now, I mean, kid's allergic to most everything, but, but we try, for the most part, to only eat things he can eat because we wanted to feel a part of the family. We, we, want, we want to pursue humility. We want to be humble enough to not demand what we have the right to so that we might better serve and love someone else. This is, this is the call that Paul is laying on the Corinthians here in 8 through 11 and, and through 16. Give up, he said, give up your rights. Don't seek your own good. Seek the good of the other person. I wonder, what right of yours might God want you to give up for the good of the church? Or what right of yours might God want you to give up for the good of your spouse or your family. Or maybe I didn't state it this way. Are you more concerned with your rights and being right than you are with relationship? You see, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, and love must govern the entirety of the Christian life. We should pursue humility so that we can consider one another more significant than ourselves and thus build up the body of Christ. Look at uh, chapter 12. Paul begins to address spiritual gifts. And what has happened in Corinth is they've taken these spiritual gifts and they've used these to kind of decide who is more important than, you know, everybody else. And so in Corinth, it's if you speak in tongues, they're going, you're really, really awesome. You're on the highest pedestal. If you have other gifts, that's cool, but tongues is really the best. If you're an administrator, you have the gift of administration, we, we don't really think you're very cool. You're on the outs. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. All of these gifts exist for the building up of the church, not for the building up of you. And all of them are important. And say, Some people are hands, and we want hands to do hand things because that's important. Some people are feet, and we want feet to do feet things because that's important. Some people are eyes, and we want them to do eye things because that's important. Some people are mouths, and we want them to be quiet because they talk too much. Right? It says, but all of these gifts are for building up. They, they show the Spirit of God in us. And when you exercise a spiritual gift of love, it, it's like the Spirit of God is in, I mean, if you were translucent, like a little light bulb that turned on inside of you and went out so everybody else could see it. This is what he says in, in chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. 
A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. For just as the body, this is verse 12, just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Two observations. First, unity is not uniformity. The church's unity in Christ is not a dull monotony, but a rich harmony. We all work together for the common good, for the mutual upbuilding of the people of Christ. We, we exist as a church to glorify God together, to build one another up, and to evangelize the world together. To glorify God to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. This is dealing with the glorification of God through the edification of the saints. We are building up the church when we use our gifts to serve one another in love. That's what Paul says in 13. If I speak, verse 1, 13, verse 1, if I speak human or angelic tongues or languages, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, if I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all ministry, mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and I give my body over to the flames in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Here's what he's saying. If I'm using my gift to serve myself, I am nothing. If I'm using my gift in order that I might boast in myself and show how superior I am, it's worthless. So exercising the gift in love for the benefit of somebody else is what gives it great value. Its purpose is to build the church. If you're using it to build yourself up, you're actually tearing down the church. It's not its purpose. You use these gifts to love one another, to build up the church. And then he gets really practical in chapter 14 and says, look, if you have a gift, and he points to tongues, that can't build up the church, then don't use it. Give up your right to exercise your spiritual gift so that the church might be built up. Just pursue love. Desire spiritual gifts. Desire to build up the church. 14.12 Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, Seek to excel in building up the church. 14.26 What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. So when you come to church, the question isn't, what did I get out of the sermon today? Well, nothing. It was kind of lame. What did I get out of the music? Oh, it was great. Now the question is, when you come to church, how did I give? How did I build? How did I sing? How did I listen? How did I greet? How did I love? How did I build up the church? There are many ways to build up the church, and, and I'll share a few with you. Some of them are fairly easy. And the first way to build up the church is to show up to church. Show up when we gather. It's encouraging when we see you here. You encourage other people, believe it or not. I mean, you might look a mess. I often do. You, you might have had to drag yourself here and not really wanted to come, but you did so because you're disciplined and you love Jesus. But you just being here, other people look and go, hey, you know, Joe's here today. That's awesome. You build up the church just by showing up. The second way is by singing. Sing the songs. Often hear uh, folks tell me, well, I don't sing well, and so I just kind of do the, mime the words with my mouth, like watermelon, you know, sitting there. I don't sing great. I don't care. I want to hear your awful voice in my ear. All right? God wants to hear you sing. There's a command to sing over and over and over again in the scriptures. And let's, guess what? I know you sing in the shower by yourself. I know you sing in your car when you're driving down the road by yourself. Journey comes on. Just a small town, girl. I know, I've seen you. 
sing. If there is anything worth singing over, is it not the Son of God crucified for your sins and risen from the dead for your justification? Sing. In other words, pray. Pray together with us. Pray with other people. Listen to the sermon. Think about the sermon. Allow God's word to weigh on you and to change you and shape you. Greet one another. Have one another over for dinner during the week. You know, get together for lunches. May have phone calls where you're reading through a book of the Bible together. Really, really easy. Uh, we're going to be start the book of Malachi next week. And so really easy ways you can say, um, hey, I'm going to call my friend. We're going to read through a chapter of Malachi a day together this week. We're going to call and talk about it for five minutes, and then we're going to pray together. Watch your life change. Husbands, pray with your wives. Watch your marriage change. Watch your family change. So you seek to build them up as part of building up the church. Give. Give of your money and of your time and of your very lives. Build up the church. Jesus has commanded us that, to believe in him and to love one another. 1 John 3, 23, I believe. It says to Peter, after he's denied him three times at the end of John, it says, Peter, if you love me, Peter says, yeah, I love you, Lord. He says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And then Peter says, well, if you love me, then feed my sheep. And what he, what he means by that, he repeats it over and over again, is care for my people. If you love Jesus, you have to love the people of Jesus. If you love Jesus, love the church. Build up the church. So we want to pursue building one another up. Pursue honoring God by encouraging and loving one another. In the last two, cha- two chapters, and this is my shortest section for those of you that are getting antsy, since we spent so much time in chapter 15, is to pursue faithfulness. The Corinthians had begun believing in death more than in life. They began doubt- doubting the resurrection. And Paul says the kind of faith that strays away from these foundational Christian doctrines is a faith that is in vain. It's not a saving faith. Says any Christianity that is emptied of the blood of Christ, any Christianity that leaves Jesus buried in a Middle Eastern tomb somewhere is no Christianity and it is of no value. He says, don't believe in vain. Pursue faithfulness. He reminds them, chapter 15, verse 1, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you which you received on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul reiterates for the Corinthians the rudimentary Christian creed. Jesus dies for our sins, raises for our justification. And then he goes on to list a cast of characters to show us the type of people that confess Christianity. We see that this message of grace is for all kinds of people. It is for killers like Paul. It is for screw-ups like Peter. It is for skeptics like James. It is for the nobodies like the nameless 500. This message will save anyone who believes it, if they faithfully believe it. The proof that you have believed the gospel is that you keep believing the gospel. And Paul says this isn't just a message that we made up. If it's something we've made up, if it's a fairy tale, then we should be pitied above all people. But it's not. Verse 20, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Those who are in Christ, even though through death we may return to the ashes, when Jesus returns we will bodily be raised to the stars 
The gift of, of death, the gift of death, the death of death has been accomplished in the death of Christ. The sting of death has been supplanted by the gift of grace. So that we can truly sing one day when we are given new resurrection bodies, when, verse 54, this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, we can say death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Why should we pursue faithfulness? Why should we keep believing the gospel? Why should we continue in the Lord's work? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus really did live Jesus really did die for your sins. Jesus really did get up from the grave. He really is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He really will bring you into his presence upon your death. And he really is going to return to raise all of us to new life with resurrection bodies, to enjoy everlasting life together with him and each other forever. So pursue faithfulness. Protect These rudimentary Christian doctrines do not swerve from them. Do not fall away from them. Verse 13 of chapter 16, guard them by being alert, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being courageous, be strong. Verse 14, do everything in love. Church, Christ has called us to love one another as he has loved us. And guess what? If you are a Christian, you're stuck with the people in this room forever. Listen, if that's hell for you now, if it's hell for you now, it will be hell for you later. No one says, I love God, but hates his brother. No one says, I love God, but hates his sister. We are to love one another and to build one another up, to remind one another of this wonderful gospel. And we protect this truth by rehearsing the gospel weekly when we gather together, by reminding one another about it through the week, by, by gossiping the gospel. The way, you, the way you protect about something that's genuine and true is by knowing it intimately, inside and out. The way you can protect yourself against false gospels is by really familiarizing yourself with the true gospel. Same thing with dollar bills. What do the people that are trying to create counterfeits do? They try to make the fake look a lot like the real one. But if you know a real dollar bill, you know you hold it up, it's got that little line in it, and numbers and stuff. I don't know how all that works. But you're able to see what's genuine and authentic and what's fake. Likewise, if you get this gospel, if you get the message of Christianity ground down deep into your bones, you will be better able to identify those false gospels that are peddled. Be better able to pursue faithfulness. Friends, I'm excited that Christianity is true. You should be too. We should all eagerly look forward to the day when Christ returns to make all things new. We should be thankful that we are not like those who hopelessly say, verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. No, no, no. Church, we get to say, let us eat and drink for yesterday we were dead. But today, in Christ, we are alive. 